You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 18. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. So let me ask this question. How do you feel about work? How much do you love to work? Long, hard work in whatever form it comes in. Whether it's, it's mental exertion of organizing or studying or calculating or whatever it might be, or whether it's, it's physical labor and exertion. What do you think of when you think about work? How, how happy are you to work? Many believe work came about because of the fall. That Adam sinned, and so suffering, death, and work came into the world. But that's not what we see in Scripture. Matter of fact, we see work comes in before the fall. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read here, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work came before the fall. God created us to work. So what came with the fall? Not work, but the hatred of work. What came with the fall is the the burden of work, uh, the difficulty and the exertion at times, which is futile, that we give so much to work and yet often get so little in return. That, that's what came because of the fall, the difficulty in working. But work itself is good. Matter of fact, in eternity, when sin is done away with, when we are made holy like Christ and there is no more curse, in the new heaven, and the new earth, we're going to work. We read in Revelation 22.3 that we're going to serve our Lord and God. Work is good. And that's something I, I still need to learn. That's not part of the curse. God made us to work. And in our work, we are called to glorify him. No matter what we do, no matter what the work is, whatever our job is, we have a calling. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, they, they taught that only the clergy had a calling from God. But when the Reformation came along, uh, the Reformers' goal was to turn back to the Scriptures as the authority of our faith and practice. And therefore, the Reformers rejected the teaching that only the clergy had a calling from God. But in the priesthood of all believers, we are all called by God. And all that we do, it is to be for the glory of God. And so we should do all that we do for his glory. Whatever we do, whatever job we have, it is first and primarily for God's glory. Even as you go to work and you provide for your family, you do that. You provide for your family for the glory of God. And when we understand work that way, it should affect our outlook on work. It should affect how we work. That we are working more than just for the weekend. That we're working more than just for a paycheck. More than just to put food on the table and meet the needs of this temporary life. 
But in all that we do, we strive for what has eternal value. And so in all we do, we should do it with all our might. Whether someone is watching us or not, our work should show, the quality that we put into our work should show that we recognize that we ultimately work for God. And so as we come to our passage here for this morning, we look at this passage, and in this text, the big idea is that Paul is telling the church what to do with those who continue living out of order or continue in idle living by not working when they can work. And instead, they depend on others. And he calls those who will not work to work and provide for themselves. And so that's what we see going on here in this passage. Now, last week, we began chapter 3, and as we looked at verses 1 through 5, we we said that these were really an introduction to this new section that Paul is getting into here. And so really, we get into the meat of this section here this morning. And and in that introduction, Paul started off by asking for prayer for himself and his co-workers as they spread the gospel, and he asked the Thessalonians to pray that the gospel would run ahead and be honored, and that they themselves would be delivered from wicked and evil men. Paul also encouraged the Thessalonians through their persecution, whatever other affliction they were facing, and pointed them to have confidence in God, God who would establish and guard them against the evil one. And then as we came to verse 4 last week, we said it was there that Paul began to lead into what his main idea for this section would be. As Paul mentions the idea of obedience there, that the Thessalonian church at large We're living in obedience to God. We're living faithful. And so he was confident that they would continue in their obedience. And then in verse 5, we see Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, that God would direct their hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. But here with the idea of obedience established, Paul moved in this section onto where he was looking to correct the Thessalonians for an issue that was there in the church, an issue where there were some who were not working. And so for an outline of this passage, we see in verse 6, Paul commands the Thessalonians to stay away from those who are idle. In verses 7 through 9, Paul pointed the Thessalonians to the example of himself and at least Silas when they were there together teaching in Thessalonica. It could also include Timothy when he went to check on them in his time there. But nonetheless, that he points to himself and and the uh, example of his co-workers uh, to the Thessalonians. And in verses 10 through 12, after reminding the Thessalonians of his and his co-workers' example, Paul returned to the teaching that they had passed on to them while they were with them. And then in verses 13 through 15, Paul seeks to encourage the church and tell them how to deal with those who refuse to obey what is commanded in this letter. And then when we get to verses 16 through 18, we'll see Paul closes his letter. And so uh, today we will finish our study through 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And so with that said, let's read our text here for this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we, are not, we were not idle when we were with you. 
nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you and in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Again, we saw in verse 4 last week, Paul began to lead into uh, the main idea, uh, I believe, of this passage as he brought up the idea of obedience. Because in this passage, he's calling the church to obedience. And again, the church overall was following in obedience, but there were some that needed to be corrected. And so he gave the church this command saying that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And so we see here in verse 6, Paul addresses the Thessalonians commanding what really amounts to church discipline. Keeping away from such brothers. And again, he does this uh, through his apostolic authority. That he is an apostle sent by Christ. And he makes sure it's clear by doing this, this is not just a suggestion from Paul. Uh, Paul's not saying, you know, this would be a good idea. No, but it's clear that what Paul says as a command possesses the full weight of the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, disobedience is not an option here. And this church, uh, practicing church discipline for those who refuse to work, if they would not repent of their idleness, that, that's right. That's the right thing to do. As there were those living out of order, living not in accordance to the apostolic teaching, or as Paul puts it here, the traditions that you receive from us. And again, this is something they had already received from Paul. And so as we've discussed in this letter already, and as we discussed in 1 Thessalonians, Paul continues to point back to things he had already taught them when he was there with them. And so now he's reminding them of this. Listen, we've already went over this. We already discussed this. This is what you are to be doing. And so they're not to live in idleness. And as Paul was an apostle, and as he taught them, he taught them what was the very word of God. And so what he taught them was to be the authority for their doctrine and practice. For their lives, just as we have the apostles' teaching preserved for us, and that is God's word, as we have the scriptures. And this is the authority for our doctrine in the practice of our lives. We need to recognize that. And so again, Paul calls the church to enact discipline on those who refuse to repent 
on those in the church that are in error and in disobedience to our Lord, to their Lord. And I know many have the idea of church discipline being a mean, malicious thing, but, but really church discipline is an act of love. It's not the loving thing to allow a brother or sister to continue in sin and in disobedience to their Lord. We want to see them continue to grow in their walk with the Lord as we care for each other and love each other. We want to see what's best for them. And so as he's specifically talking about work, you know, as we bring this to bear on ourselves, I understand that we live in a culture that despises work. Uh, we have a governmental system that has this, this welfare system that is way out of whack and gives people opportunity to work the system and not have to work. And we see many that, that strive after that. And it almost seems to be promoted in some ways. Uh, work is not something that is lifted up and honored in our culture. But you know what? In the Thessalonians living in their Greek culture, work was also despised among them as well. But what we rest on as true what we rest on as, as being the right thing and the proper thing of what pleases our Lord, we need to recognize that that's not something that is dictated by our culture. But what we know to be true and proper, what we know are the things that please the Lord, is dictated to us by the words of Scripture, by the plain reading of Scripture. And so my question is, do you desire to obey your God? To obey your Lord, do you desire to please him in all that you do? If that's true, then we need to recognize that laziness is not pleasing to our God. As we talk about it, it's really not pleasing in any area of life. In whatever role God has given us to, to live out in this life, whether as members of the church and, and whatever role we play in the church, or as parents, or as children of parents, or, or whether we're the provider of our homes, and so whatever our job is, or if we're the keeper of our homes. Hard work honors God in every area of our lives. And then as we see in verses 7 through 9, Paul points the Thessalonians to the example that he and his co-workers deliberately set before the church when they were with them. And it was an example of a good work ethic. In verse 7, we see Paul is giving all the more reason why they should stay away from those who refuse to repent as they disobey the apostolic teaching. And as we see here, uh, the reason was, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Again, so not only did Paul and his co-workers teach the Thessalonians about proper work ethic, but they set before them an example that should have been copied, that should have been followed. And so the Thessalonians heard the teaching from the apostles, but they also saw it fleshed out. And so for them not to obey it, there was absolutely no excuse. None at all. If they refused to repent, then it was necessary to show those unrepentant believers there that their sin was a severe thing and that they needed to change their mind they needed to have a change in action and so to show that the church would was to stay away from them and note here in verse 7 that paul said that the thessalonians knew how they ought to imitate them 
And this word that's translated here is ought. We, we've talked about it before uh, in 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians. And we even talked about it in 1 John. The word here carries the idea of a moral obligation. And so for the Thessalonians to not follow Paul's example, it would have been morally wrong for them to do so. One, because the example that Paul was setting uh, was of one obeying the very commands he was giving to them. And two, it was a moral example. And so they were to follow it. Instead of acting out of line, instead of being idle, Paul and his co-workers, they worked. They weren't dependent on anyone else. Whatever they took, they paid for. And we, we see that there in verse 8. And really, the thing is, they worked in the church laboring in ministry. They worked in the church, but on top of that, they worked to support themselves. And so this is a far cry from laziness. It's a far cry from mooching off others. We think about it, uh, the work of ministry, Paul describes it elsewhere as labor, as hard work. Uh, we saw at the end of 1 Thessalonians, as he, he talked about the leaders that the church was to recognize among them, that they were those who labored among them, laboring in the ministry, hard work in the ministry. And so for all that that meant for Paul and his co-workers to labor in the ministry there in Thessalonica, and yet on top of it, they worked outside the church. Uh, we read at the end of verse 8, he says, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. I mean, certainly no one could accuse Paul of being a money-grubbing person or, or taking advantage of anyone, which often in that culture, teachers were accused of those things. And yet, Paul actually was accused of that. At least it would seem that way as we talked about it in 1 Thessalonians, that it would seem that that charge was laid against Paul, but there is no way that that charge could stick. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, uh, where Paul was reminding the Thessalonians uh, of his integrity. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Uh, notice how it's, it's the same thing that we're reading here in 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians. Uh, that he, he said it already in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he goes on, that not only did they work night and day, not only did they support themselves, but all the while, while they were supporting themselves, they were proclaiming to the Thessalonians the gospel of God. They were doing the work of ministry. Again, as we discussed back in 1 Thessalonians, clearly Paul and his co-workers were not taking advantage of the Thessalonians. And verse 9 makes it clear. They worked and supported their ministry at the church, not because they didn't have the right to have the church support them. They certainly did. Uh, but they saw the specific need in the church. And so they worked outside the church, one, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians, so that uh, there was evidence against the accusations that were flying around, that it could be proven that Paul was not taking advantage of anyone, and so there would be no barrier to the gospel. So he worked. But also, too, we see here in verse 9 that they worked outside the church to give the Thessalonians in themselves an example to imitate. Uh, they led the Thessalonians to live a God-honoring life by their own example. And really, the best leaders lead by example. And that's what we see Paul and his co-workers doing. Then in verses 10 to 12, 
After reminding the Thessalonians of his and his co-workers' example, Paul returned to the teaching that they had passed down to them while they were with them in Thessalonica. And verse 10, I think we see that this issue of not working was not a new issue to the Thessalonians. It wasn't like this just kind of came about after Paul had left. No, but we read here, it says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So while they were there with the Thessalonians, they gave them the example of how to live. But also, too, they they gave them this command. Uh, Clearly, there was an issue here where they had to say, listen, if you're not going to work, if you're not going to provide for yourself, then no one else should provide for you either. And notice, just so it's clear here, what Paul does say. Paul says, if anyone is not willing to work. Uh, So this is not referring to those who genuinely cannot work. There are those who have genuine needs, who genuinely, for whatever the reason is, cannot provide for themselves. And so those with those genuine needs, we should come alongside of, we should seek to meet those needs and provide for them and help them and love on them. Certainly, we should do that. Matter of fact, uh, one of the reasons Paul gives for doing honest work in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, is so that the one who works may have something to share with anyone in need. So yeah, absolutely, when someone has a need, a genuine need, we should seek to fulfill that need. But those who are looking for whatever reason they can to come up with not to work, whatever excuse they can find to avoid work, And so those who should be able to work, but instead are choosing not to, and therefore dependent on others to meet their needs, they're really in sin. Even those who, for some reason, may not be able to do what they used to do, or may not be able to do the things they want to do, if there's something they can do, if they can do any kind of honest work, anything at all, they should do it. Anything that can, at the very least, contribute to meeting their own needs, they should do that. If you do not need to be dependent on others, then you shouldn't be. For it is God's will that we work. And so Paul commanded, if you are unwilling to work, then you shouldn't eat either. And we see in verse 11 that the reason for this command is that they were aware of, they had heard that there were some in the church who were living out of line living idle lives, not working at all, and instead were busybodies. So instead of being busy working, they're busy interfering in the lives of others, being anything but productive with their time. And this interfering in the lives of others, it could be seen in the idea of that they were siphoning away resources that were in the church being funneled to them when it should have been being funneled somewhere else or there was a genuine need. Or two, in verse 12, it may seem to indicate that they were really getting wrapped up in things that were not their business to get wrapped up in in other people's lives. That they were getting into other people's private matters and meddling in people's lives, causing problems for them. Maybe doing things like giving unsolicited advice or unwarranted criticism, butting in where they didn't belong and trying to control someone else's life. They weren't to be doing such things. They weren't to be doing such things, especially as they were ignoring their own affairs. 
They weren't taking up their own responsibilities to meet their own needs. And yet they're going to meddle in somebody else's life? That's, that's not okay. So then Paul, having reminded them of what he commanded when he was there in Thessalonica, having heard about the laziness of some members of the church, Paul in verse 12 makes it clear what these idle members were to do. Verse 12 says, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. They were to work quietly, quietly as opposed to meddling in the lives of others, as opposed to butting in to people's private matters where they didn't belong. Now, now this shouldn't cause us to think then that we're not to be involved in each other's lives, because as the church, we, we certainly are. Clearly, from other passages we've gone over, we have responsibility towards one another, and we are to serve one another and hold each other accountable. But accountable to what? To what the scriptures say. To the teachings of the Bible. Not to things that are just my preferences. Uh, not to the things that I think you should be doing. Uh, not to just what's really none of my business. But where does this word of God direct us in loving each other and serving each other and calling each other to holiness? In those things, we are certainly to be involved in each other's lives. But otherwise, we are to mind our own business and work quietly, mind our own affairs, earn our own living, eat the food that is our food because we paid for it. And we are able to pay for it because we worked and able to meet our needs. Then in verses 13 through 15, Paul encourages the whole church and he tells them how to deal with those who continued on living in disobedience to the commands of this letter. Paul encouraged the Thessalonians not to give up on doing what really was good to do. And considering everything Paul says here, uh, he could be referring to that as he tells them not to, those who are not working, to, to work and, and not to depend on others, he wants to make sure that, that people in the church don't cease to be giving to the needs of those who genuinely have need. So continue to do what's good. If someone truly has a need, give to it. Help them. Don't stop doing that just because there are those who are trying to uh, leech off of you. But help those who are in need. Do what is good. Don't grow weary in that. Don't be discouraged in that. So we must continue to help those who have need. But for those who can work, but don't want to, and so don't, and so therefore are in disobedience to what Paul says here in this letter, Paul makes it very clear to the church in verse 14, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. He may be ashamed. <laughs> so we're supposed to be shaming people here? Is that what this is saying? And our culture has a lot to say about shaming people, right? But what's going on here in this text? This is not the idea of making someone feel bad or disgrace due to something about themselves that they cannot help. Uh, this is not the idea of degrading somebody or being malicious towards them or lacking respect towards them. Uh, I mean, I think the next verse makes that crystal clear. This is not what this is talking about. But the idea is that 
Something is to be done to show the sinning brother or sister the seriousness of their sin. Again, it is not the loving thing to do to let our fellow believers continue in their sin. It is not good for them. And it's not good for the church as a whole. The loving thing to do is to do what is necessary to show them the seriousness of their sin. So that they might be brought to their senses and repent. And so nothing the church was to do was to be something that was malicious or hateful or degrading, but to demonstrate love for each other and care for each other. I mean, what does the next verse say? Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And we love each other as such. We're a family. For all whom Christ has saved, we are adopted as children of God, are we not? And so we should seek out what is best for each other in light of this. And if one of us falls into sin, we want what's best for that person. And what's best for them is repentance. And that they would continue to grow in their walk with the Lord. And when there's repentance, do we keep holding their sin against them and saying, Well, look how awful you have been? Well, no, because then you can do that to me too. <laughs> no, but when there's repentance, we rejoice. We're glad that the person has turned away from their sin, and we, we're so thankful because this is what is best for them, as they continue uh, to grow in their walk with the Lord. And this is the same thing any one of us would want if we were to fall into sin. We would want to be called to repentance, and when we repented, uh, feel that warm embrace and celebration of, of the rest of our brothers and sisters. And so we should do that for each other. And, you know, the truth be told, none of us work like we should. Let's just be honest. Even if we are known as hard workers and we have a reputation of being responsible, there are days that we don't do as well as we should. And I think it's safe to say for every one of us that at least at some point there has been times where we did not work as if working for the Lord. And whatever it is that we were doing, or whatever it is we do do, whatever our job is, and whatever our role in this life is, whether uh, as uh, the provider of our home, or as parents, or as church members, or whatever it is, laziness tempts all of us. But when faced with temptation to be lazy, or faced with temptation not just laziness, but with lust or deceitfulness, or, or whatever it is, how do we instead, in the face of that temptation, pursue holiness? How do we say no to the desires of our flesh and live out the salvation that Jesus purchased for us? Well, it's remembering just that. We're living out the salvation that Jesus purchased for us. It's keeping before ourselves the gospel. It's keeping before ourselves what Christ has done for us to free us from our sin. Jesus purchased our salvation. He took the price that I deserve for my sin, the wrath of God, on himself, in his own body, in my place. The Lord crushed him instead of crushing me. And now because of his work on my behalf, I'm free. Free to live for him. Free to say no to my sin. As his Holy Spirit indwells me and rem reminds me of his great love and the gospel I can persevere through temptation and respond in love for him who so loved me that he died for me. 
And if in weakness I make the wrong choice, if I give in to temptation, I can again remember his sacrifice, that his death paid for my sin, past, present, and future, that the work is finished and there's nothing I can do to add to it or take away, that his sacrifice allows me to know his grace, and this can bring me again to repentance, to get up and to leave my sin behind, to live to honor him as I seek to put my sin to death. Making the choice to live for his glory in everything. And if you're sitting here, and this is odd to you, and you're thinking, really, I mean, I'm not that bad, and so what's the big deal if we make these choices that we give in here and there? Or really, what's so wrong in giving in to the desires of our flesh? I don't have any desires that are that bad. What's, what's wrong with wanting rest, being lazy every so often, right? Well, my friend, I want to ask you then, do, do you know this God? And if you know him, do, do you see that he is holy? And being holy, our sin, no matter how small it may be in our own eyes, is an infinite offense against his infinite holiness. And our sin has earned for ourselves his infinite wrath. And because God is holy, he will bring the full weight of his holiness and justice on our sin. It will come against us with it because that is what we have earned. Because he is holy. And as our holy God, he is holy in justice and he is holy in love and mercy. And in his love and mercy, he sent his son. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, became a man and lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And then as the perfect man, he went to the cross as the perfect sacrifice. Where God the Father credited Jesus with all of the sin of all who would believe on him. All of your sin. Uh, Not just the things that you did in the past, but the things that you are going to do as well. All that you have earned and will earn, he laid on his son in our place. And Jesus offered himself as a guilt offering for sin in our place. Satisfying the wrath of God in our place. Dying for us the death we should die. But as we, as Andrew read in John, he did not stay dead. He rose again and he is alive today. Alive is our risen Lord. And your risen Lord commands you to repent, to turn from your sin. Not that we become perfect in this life, but we recognize the love of God. We recognize, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, that the, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And if I really know that and believe that, how do I not love him in return? And if I love him, how, why would I want to continue in that which is an offense against his holiness? But I turn from my sin And turning from my sin, I turn to Jesus by faith. And I put my complete dependency and trust in him to save me and forgive me of my sins and make me right before God, not in my own righteousness, but his righteousness. That by faith, God credits me with the perfect, righteous life of Jesus Christ. That though I am a sinner, I stand before God as holy and blameless in his sight because of the holiness and blamelessness of Jesus Christ. And in that, my salvation is secure. 
In Jesus, I have a home in glory to be with him, my great and awesome God, forever. And if you get that, you understand that. And man, it, it motivates us, impresses us on to want to do everything we do for his glory. To, to see that our sin dies in us. Because look how great he is. Look how awesome he is. Look how gracious and loving and holy and just he is. He is worthy of me laying down my life for him. How great is our God. And so, my friends, if you don't know this God, I plead with you, please, repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And when you trust in Jesus alone, you will be saved. And you will know what it is to live for the honor and glory of your God, to, to live in all that you do, to seek to please him and to desire him in everything. And for you and I who believe this is our motivation to keep before us that everything we do is for the Lord. That we, we work hard and we want to offer quality work and whatever it is for him. That we shut off laziness because he is worthy of us living and working hard. Then as Paul draws his letter to a close, he expresses for the final time, his prayerful desire for the Thessalonians, namely that the Lord of peace would give them peace. And he is the Lord of peace. And he gives peace through granting us who are sinners peace with himself through the gospel, through what I just went over. And we have peace with him, then we can have peace with each other. And as we live in obedience to him, as we live seeking to glorify him in everything, we can experience his peace in our lives. And so after uh, encouraging the Thessalonians to persevere through their persecution and affliction, after correcting false doctrine that had moved uh, the Thessalonians in their thinking and, and made them alarmed, and then after bringing a word of correction to the idol among them, an expression of peace in all times and in every way is an appropriate conclusion to this letter, as they also request the Lord's presence to be with them. And then verse 17, we, we see Paul felt it necessary to draw their attention to what marked uh, his letters as authentically from him. As Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And we've already discussed here that there seem to be some indications that there may have been another letter going around with false doctrines, false teachings about the end times claiming to be from Paul. And so he wants to make sure that they can recognize when a letter is genuinely from him. And then verse 18, we see Paul signs off, saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. By his grace, we can overcome laziness. By his grace, we can overcome our sin and live for his glory. By his grace, we can press on and encourage each other to press on, to continue to repent of sin, to pursue holiness, and to live a life of hard work that honors our God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visit nvbc.com.